0: Orland Bishop, welcome to the New School. Thank you very much, Michael.
1: Yeah.
0: Orland, tell us about your current work. What do you do
1: in Los Angeles? My work aims at creating a space. Space is, in consciousness, it reveals how I must be for someone to be themselves. What we do with that is we call mentorship, to provide a context of support for someone to step out of difficulty into sanctuary, whereby they could reorient their willpower to transform the forces that inhibit their own kind of aspirations. And so it is how conversation could lead a person into Self-mastery. And it is a a form of initiation. Dialogue is a form of initiation whereby the person can re-imagine their own psychology. Because if we begin to examine our conditions, the examination itself is a therapeutic factor. So reflection for the human being is recovery of the self. Only a self can reflect. And so what we, what we provide in, 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 in support of, of individuals we meet is a way to reflect on what they're experiencing and from there begin to give meaning to the processes of change that will eventually heal the conditions that prohibit the life forces.
0: Now, you do this through the Shade Tree Multicultural
1: Foundation, is yes. that correct? Yes, Shade Tree is a primary context for that right. work.
0: And uh, when did you found Shade Tree? Uh,
1: February of 1995. The impulse came in in February of 1995. We did not formally register it until five years later. Mm-hmm. Why? Because um, for me, it was more of a practice to create this space than an organization. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was founded around uh, individuals whom we were meeting with difficult life circumstances and who needed uh, a relationship to get out of there.
0: For more than 20 years, you have worked with gang members in Central Los Angeles. That's been at the core of Shade Tree's work. And you've served on the board, in fact chair of the board, of a local organization that has held the 20-year truce between the Bloods and the Crips in Los Angeles. Yes. Um, So the anniversary of that is next year, I
1: believe. The 20th anniversary is next year.
0: Yeah. But you mentioned that you think you may need to renegotiate that truce at that point, that there have been developments in the community that may cause reflection on the truce?
1: Yes, the truce lasted um, about 12 years. It fell apart after 12 years um, due to the fact that uh, a new generation of young people who found themselves in gang could not was not present at the first agreement of, this, of the gang truce. And so every kind of peace treaty has to re- be renegotiated for every generation that enters that process. Yeah. And they must now not only bring um, uh, the, the memory of that truce current, but bring a f- new imagination into it as well. And so uh, there was not enough effort to do that. I think the, the, the error in any truce is that we forget why we made it in the first place. And so that when those people who were responsible for the first agreements of those truths were no longer there, the, the absence created um, this loss of the sacred nature of the agreement. And so one incident just made it fall apart.
0: In addition to your work in, in Watson and in Central Los Angeles, you also travel all over the world, teaching and consulting uh, with people in Germany and Philadelphia, just uh, some of your upcoming uh, stops. Um, What is it that you do in that broader work uh, nationally and internationally?
1: Well, the invitations are are twofold. One, I found that um, I'm mostly invited by young people. And their sense of the invitation has to do with um, wanting to know how to go into the unknown. What is the unknown in themselves? In a young person's Heart, mind, the unknown is the ancestral world. The first crossing that a person uh, from adolescence into adulthood must cross is the ancestral boundary, meaning they must cross the inheritance that they are born into. And this critical process is, um, we can say, is the psychology that that gives. The person, the opportunity to see their shadow before they see their light. And, and this, this place is that they meet something that is not truly themselves. It's their inheritance. It's not who they are. Their work is to transform that inheritance or to give it enough meaning to carry it as far as they need to carry it in the integrity of utilizing the ancestral memory to become more present in our time. Every human being is given a certain kind of inheritance, and this unconscious substance becomes available in the psyche at adolescence, and from there we begin to experience motives that is not truly refined by our own consciousness. And so young people have, um, and particularly in this generation, have a tremendous pressure to know what to do with the given stuff that they carry in the psyche. Yet the aspiration to want to be true to something that is that nature is so present and strong. And so what, what we try to do is define what is not given, which is the the will to aspire, the will to meaning, the will to courage. These are things that the human being must improvise because it only comes out of improvisation. You can't have a plan for courage. Mm -hmm. You have a plan for meaning. It arises out of witnessing a moment when you can act. So the will to act is what we primarily do. What I go out and if you want to do something, how do you do it? What is the first step? if you are afraid to act, the, 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 what the task is, to find some being that can inspire you. And this is what we do. We fi- try to find the people, the places, the situations, the practices that inspire people to take the act of will as far as they need to.
0: We are here today and honored to be here today, a small group of us, to... Uh, receive and explore with you your spiritual biography, Uh, the trajectory from childhood to the present that brought you to this work, that brought you to this consciousness. In our conversations leading up to the conversation today, I've come to understand that there are three great traditions that have come together in your experience. So, at the outset, perhaps, you could describe briefly what those three traditions that have come together for you are.
1: Yeah. The the one that I was born into that began to stir in my mind um, had to do with Gnosis, African Gnosis. My first recollection of awaking to this impulse was around five years old. to, to, To know that I could do something with consciousness And strengthen it under my own intention. And so around five, I started to do a practice of knowing how to know. And it meant to me to silence my outer desire body and focus on attentiveness. And what happened in that process was the remembering of certain capacities that I would say were tied to the other stream of my life, which is, um, on a the, the current, is a kind of hermetic practice, or can, in this term now, ros- Rosicrucian. The laws that allow the human being to function as a soul-conscious entity, or uh, uh, awake in the will. And then the uh, later part are um, ritual and ceremony. Ceremonial order, as we call it. How to work with beings um, in different dimensions of life that allow order to happen within time, space, and the um, manifested world. Mm.
0: So let's go back to that experience at age five. Um, uh, But let's, even before that, let's start with your birth story. Uh, you were born July 2nd, 1966. July 20th. July 20th. 20th thank, yeah,
1: you. <laughs> um, zero's uh, missing,
0: thank you. The zero is missing. Thank you. July 20th, 1966, in what was then British Guyana. Yes. Yes. Uh, your father was a plumbing engineer with a bauxite mining company, your mother a homemaker. You had three brothers and three sisters. You were the sixth of seven. Yes. Yeah. Uh, at five, uh, you had an experience with a teacher. Tell us about that experience.
1: Well, one day in school, um, I, in lessons, but my teacher wanted my attention, and I was elsewhere in thought. <laughs> and, but my concentration was such that when I turned and gave her my attention, I observed the inner dialogue that she was in deciding whether she should punish me for not paying attention or not. And I watched her have this debate, and she decided that she should punish me for not paying attention. But I observe as well that it was in, to, to create an authority rather than to do something that was true. And I thought to myself, why would she do something her heart is telling her not to do? And I remember saying to myself in the moment, I would never betray my heart. I knew that there was a part of the human being that is always a witness to the higher motive of who we are. And to not give that acknowledgement in for some other form of authority is a betrayal of who we are. Now I didn't, I didn't have words for it, then I just know it was a thought that was clear enough to say I would not do that anymore. So the following day, I woke up two hours earlier in order to prepare my mind to follow my heart. And what I did, I started the practice of um, well, not wanting breakfast and not wanting the things that will interrupt my concentration. And I sat for two hours before going to school every day. And um, my parents and brothers and sisters, when they woke up, they will see me sitting. Why is he sitting there every day not doing anything? Well, we didn't have a meditative community around (laughs) us, so (laughs) no one thought it to be um, (coughs) part of some tradition because no one else did it. But I, I knew I had to do that every day before going into the world. It opened me to being able to see the motives of others very clearly and to understand the direction that I must take in my will. And um, never had the peer pressure factor to do anything that was against the truth of what I knew.
0: At age seven, you had another experience. This time, uh, swimming at the beach.
1: Yes, um, my my brothers and I went one day to. Um, we uh, Georgetown is on the Atlantic coast, so it wasn't very far walk to the to the beach and. Um, while in the water, I was just walking out, and um, I fell into a hole, I remember. Um, the current, very strong, and I went into this hole. And the water is not like the blue Caribbean water. That This is more uh, silty brown water. So it, there was no way to see below that until this light filled it, and it became very clear water, what was even more surprising that I was able to breathe while submerged. And I began to to think about what this process was, uh, what this light is doing, uh, because I can see the whole patterns of the space that I was in. And looking up, um, seeing the light right above the circle of the hole. And then it settled. I was floating on top of the water and there was I, I stepped around to find where the hole was it wasn't there anymore and I walked out leaving with a very severe headache and um, a lot of questions as to what happened. Uh, my brothers thought that I was almost drunk they uh, questioned me about it and I told them no I was breathing you know for a person to drunk they have to not be able to breathe and um, but they the impact was significant enough for me to understand that water had a mystery to it. And I was not going back into that without, without some degree of knowing what lies beyond those, um, those depths of water.
0: Now, the significance of this was revealed to you 21 years later. Yes. Yeah. What was that?
1: Well, I was in a ritual uh, with two friends, um, Maladoma Somme and his sister, uh, Martine, who were visiting, she was visiting from Burkina Faso. And she is a contumbler priest. In the Dagra tradition, a contumbler priest is one who mediates through um, these beings, they call um, realities, particularly in the, related to the ancestral world. So she offered to do a ritual for me, and um, she invoked these beings, and they're audible. You can hear their speech. And she um, introduced the us and they were speaking and said, uh, well, your grandfather pulled you into the well. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just, you know, reacting to it, the thoughts. I said, well, I've never met any of my grandfathers. They all had died before I was born. And they said, yes, your grandfather from five generations back pulled you into the well to pass his medicine on to you. And so I began to inquire what was that. And the explanation was, in fact, the, the whole experience became, came back to memory. And what I remember um, became clearer when they were saying that his work was, what I learned, he was from Sierra Leone, and what I learned is that he had, as a shaman, would open this vertex in the ocean and would put people in for healing, and they would stay submerged until the healing was complete. Then they will come out, and so the, this 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 um, reality um, was something that I was to take up um, in the generation that I was born into, and and re- reconnect to the um, to that legacy and that inheritance.
0: Now the contambles, am I saying the word right? Contambles. 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 The contumels are audible in the United States, but in Africa they became visible to
1: you. Yes. Well, the shrine have to be there. Uh, there must be a shrine through which they they um, come into our our world space, and we uh, the, the the primary shrines that I have are in, are in Africa. And so they are, uh, they have manifested physically. They are given appearance that will be appropriate for us to witness them so they can take any form but mostly they will take a human form just to be more consistent
0: there is also a shrine in Bahia is that correct or is that a different tradition
1: that's a different tradition oh forgive me um, yeah there, there is Conteble in Brazil yes that's a different tradition okay. all coming from the Congo okay. But the, the realization is still the same. There are places that Africans have established earth shrines um, after they were, they were brought um, as slaves to, the, to these other places. Uh, the earth shrines are required to be um, created as vessels, not only for the, um, for the transition time when they would die, but also to allow um, access. To the ancestral world. Mm-hmm. And so many places in the south and, and other countries, there are earth shrines.
0: The reason I made that mistake was that we um, spoke last night of uh, an ocean goddess, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Remind me of who she is. Yimaya. Yimaya. And what tradition does she come from?
1: Yimaya is connected to Ifa, it's uh, from the uh, Yoruba culture in Nigeria. Um, in the in the Ifa tradition, they uh, from West Africa, and, but also we say it is it is uh, uh, has always been a being connected to the mysteries of the water, and different cultural phases the, the names will change. Yemaya was born more consciously in the transatlantic slave experience. On the way to, to on these slave ships, this being became a reality to those who were being forced into slavery. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the primary shrines and sanctuaries is in Bahia, Brazil. Mm-hmm.
0: And you have thought deeply about that... Uh transatlantic slave trade and the power of it as an initiation for American black people. Could you say more about that?
1: Yeah, the characteristics of initiation are threefold. The first phase of any initiation is separation from what you previously knew or were part of. So separation is the first phase. And in this in this sense, being separated from the ancestral land in Africa. Um, and then the second phase is a dilemma, which we can call the enslavement. In the dilemma, no one would want to choose that as a form of initiation. No one chooses their initiation, or if they, if they know what it would be like, they would not go. <laughs> and initiation always is a certain kind of involuntary necessity for something greater than what we know will be born out of the sacrifice. Now, the the, the processes are such that when Africans were being um, brought in these ships, their own knowledge, which has to do with gnosis, meant that they had to go into into realms of thought and prayers and and invocations to bring with them uh, what they knew. So even though they could not break the physical chains, they can still transmigrate through activities of the soul and bring qualities of their earth shrines with them. And so on these voyages, they were, they were told, um, we were told by these elders in South Africa that um, initiates, elder initiates went on board voluntarily to make sure that certain rites of passage happened by the time they get off the ships, these initiations would have taken place and that they would be able to know a little bit more about what they're going towards. And so, um, there was one elder who'd made this journey three times, and on the last trip, he got dropped into the um, ocean and um, was never saw, seen again. But the initiations were had taken place. When he was on these ships, no one died. And the initiations were done. Now, n- not everyone was able to be initiated um, in that way. And so uh, there was, in mixed into all of that, uh, were priesthoods, priests of this various um, sacred knowledge coming out of Africa. So initiation is, the reintegration of the uh, the soul forces into the the immediate destiny that a person is living, and the utilization of other kinds of, of help. And if you imagine that, would say, uh, I mean, it's it's estimated that twenty eight million people made it alive in the. North American slave experience. For every one that made it alive, two or three died in that process. So you can imagine it's, it's close to 100 million people that could have been removed over a 400-year period. This kind of event um, pulled forces into, into the world in a remarkable way. It created gods in that process. It created beings that, that responded to that level of human suffering. <clears throat> and so, what, what do human beings do primarily? We create beings. Not just physical, other physical human beings like ourselves, but human thoughts can become so empowered that we can create elemental beings and in certain way create out of nature great beings. And this is what Yimaya was born out of, human suffering. And she she, uh, began to provide a certain kind of initiation around the water mysteries and what water is a transducer of energy from the realms in the etheric world into the physical. And so when we drink water, we actually are recalibrating our psyche. So water is not just for thirst. Water is for the psychic powers to be utilized. And so this, this, this was the vessel through which Africans were initiated into a psychic capacity that later in, in, in um, esoteric knowledge we call second psych or clairvoyance, a certain kind of capacity to see this future. And so that was the gift of this being to those who were enslaved.
0: In some ways, you began to be exposed to the recollection of these ideas. Uh, first of all, as we've said, at five with your experience with the teacher, then at seven with this submersion and baptism whose significance was revealed 21 years later. And then the third episode was the death of your grandmother and realizations about the nature of death.
1: Yes. As a a child, I... um Open up to, opening to, to, to the idea that we were not the only beings, other than animals and certain plants, but that they were spirit forces working in our midst. And it was that my, my grandmother was um, stuck with a nail and, and she got um, a septic from tetanus and died from this. And uh, the stories that would be heard was that she did not seek medical and I've always thought, well, medicine, if medicine could have prevented dying, then why did she not go and get it? And so I became interested in healing. I became interested in medicine. What are the forms of medicine that could allow human beings to remain healthy and, more so, to live? But when, she, after at her death, I realized at the funeral, um, when they were putting her into the ground, that something was incomplete, that the, the, the ritual, the ceremony, the funeral was not fully acknowledging everything that was happening, which was the fact that she had a continuity of life processes. And even though they were tending to the body, that was not, for me, the only reality. And so I left the funeral with the intention that I would find out what she wants still to happen. Were you close to her? Um, I didn't know her for... uh, that. uh, Yes, we we visited from time to time with her, um, but she was not in our lives very regularly.
0: Did she communicate with you after her death?
1: Um, Not in a form that I could know it was her. Uh What I knew is that I became very interested in the world of the dead. Uh Every funeral... I took on the responsibility for those people who were being buried, whose relatives did not know what else to do with them. Mm. And um, it, it uh, part part on the the way to school, I had to actually the bus I took to go to school went through a cemetery, and it was (laughs) it was for me um, like going through initiation every day Mm. to pass through a place where I know this has more significance than we know. Mm. And so I didn't know how far that would go. Um, And there was none until the death of someone else that took on that significance Mm. for me around 11 years old.
0: Mm. That death at 11 was the death of Dr. Walter Rodney, who was an economist who had visited Africa and uh, was assassinated by the government um, uh, for his um, views. Um, uh, You had heard him speak a few days before. What was the significance for you of the death of this opposition leader, uh,
1: Dr. Walter Rodney? It was huge for me. One, I, I, I was hearing someone at a time in my life when I wanted to know what was um, what a country's uh, path would be. I was born in 1966, the year Guyana gained its independence from Britain. And there were a lot of uh, civil unrest during that time. And uh, two months into uh, my life, my family moved to Georgetown, where I grew up. And there, what, what became clear to me was that there, there was more to... Um, the culture than what was being held in the politics and the political and social views. Um, I was interested in the forms of rituals that I was seeing around me that was more connected to the Hindu religion. And um, there was a Sai Baba temple close by, and um, I would go there and uh, stand by the door because I was never really invited in. And was And would just, in a certain way, make contact with um, this other impulse, and so Guyana was split in in, in many ways between Hindu and, and Christian between um, blacks and Indians, and all these various, which is an inheritance of this uh, colon, colon, colonization and um the economy was trapped in a history of, of um, people struggling to define their future without any relationship to each other. And Walter Rodney, Dr. Walter Rodney was the first person to begin to articulate a common way of thinking about nationhood and what to do with it. And I remember reading, being very connected to That particular speech I heard him give. And a week later, uh, my cousin, who was a nurse, uh, came home from the hospital uh, and just said, uh, Dr. Rodney was just killed. They brought him into the hospital. And um, it enraged me. I, I felt anger. And I felt a deep purpose of knowing what he wanted to do with that with his life. And so his funeral procession was my first political protest. Mm. I walked in the funeral procession and um, followed it to the presidential palace and protested that Mm. assassination.
0: And you've said to me that this was also the birth of your awareness of uh, Africa's contribution to the world, and uh, and you're at the beginning of your investigation of the nature of economics, the nature of wealth, the wealth of nations, and so forth. It was a, a an awakening of that sort, if I understand.
1: Well, what I found, what Dr. Rodney had written, several books, one on the working, the history of the working people in Guyana, which meant from slavery the current time, and, as well, a text called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. And he put forth the idea that every country is a developing country. Now some countries were intentionally underdeveloped by the extraction of resources, and in particular Africa's people, by extraction of people. If you take the healthiest and most conscious and creative people away from a place, the place itself loses value of their contribution. So it was an underdevelopment. Africa had stable economies prior to slavery. It had a civilized tradition of leadership, governance, and spiritual traditions, many of which got fractured by the displacement of its people. And so he he re-articulated and coined the term underdevelopment to mean a kind of conflict that is put in place to prevent the normal processes of people being able to utilize their own creativity for their futures. And he articulated as well what Africa had contributed to Western world in its building of its own civilizations. And so for me, studying his work from that point created an activism in me around social justice and the the thoughtfulness around a person's right to self-determination in a place whereby their soul can be in alignment with who they are.
0: April, 1982, you're 15 years old. You land in Brooklyn to join your family in the biggest blizzard in 15 years. (laughs) It's both cold and you are struck by the beauty of the blizzard. You take long walks in the snow.
1: Uh, Yes. It was uh, another way to enter into into wilderness Um, in the midst of a, of a, um, a city like New York. Um, it stopped everything. The blizzard stopped everything. And I think maybe it was helpful for me to to be more acquainted with nature there before the cultural forces took hold of me. I did not like the culture that I found um, immediately in high school. It was um, a continuity of what I had begun to experience in Guyana of um, ethnic, biases. Even in the school that I attended, there were a group of Haitians who were members of the school, students of the school, and because they spoke French and because they had more African qualities, they were ostracized.
0: And you found you could communicate with them without words because you didn't speak French, but you found a capacity to communicate with them.
1: Well, yes, one, one, because this quality was still in me, that, that people need, wanted a sense of belonging. People wanted a sense of community. And the fact that they, they, um, what they were seeking to be a part of was not just a school. Um, they were seeking to be part of their own humanity. And when this is being, um, I found that, that I made it intentional that I would do things with them, even if I did not speak the language.
0: The George Wingate High School was a quite large uh, uh, high school. There were 500 graduates in your class. Uh, You explored science, literature, and philosophy. Um, But a phrase from Socrates struck you deeply.
1: Yes, yes. That phrase was, if human beings truly know the truth, they will pursue it and we had a a debate in English class around that, and I spoke in favor of that idea, and everyone was against it, (laughs) in that there is no truth, and that people do things for their own reason and purpose. And I said, no, there is a quality of truth, and if we know it, and this is the thing, if we know it, and knowing is not just information, it's a capacity, And if anyone who has a capacity, we use it.
0: Your English teacher um, asked you to write an essay on mythology, um, and you used the Greek background, but uh, you created or uh, discovered uh, a god that was not part of the Greek mythology, that was part of your essay. Tell us about him.
1: Well, what was beginning to happen in, in studying mythology and philosophy was that I was beginning to re, uh, regain access to a certain kind of thinking around what what is knowable, what is reachable in consciousness. And I had a hard time in school, um, not academically in the sense of learning, but I had a hard time Accepting what I was being taught, it was—it did not fit into the paradigm of my soul. The only thing that made sense to me was philosophy, mathematics, yes, but philosophy. The rest was a certain way, not true. To me, and um, so this class was an assignment to create a myth. And I, I drew from the Greek mythology and of all these gods, and you know, Mount Olympus and such. And I added uh, another figure in this pantheon of gods. And it was, uh, I gave them the name Eunatius. And Eunatius had the, the, the hidden meaning to me, United Nations. People, beings, groups of human beings that are part of this being. So the story was that um, when human beings were being created, all the gods were asked to contribute a quality of themselves to human beings. And each of them wanted to give their best quality to human beings, in which they did. And um, Eunatius was a being of light. He had um, all the qualities of light, all the colors of light in his valence. And what he did was, this was the gift he gave to human beings. So in the first form of creation, human beings were this bright, luminous expression. And while, um, uh, I mean, one being having that kind of, uh, luminous was, was remarkable in itself, but here are now you know, a whole lot of people <laughs> with this brightness. So the universe was being lit up in a very huge way. And it created um, uh, in Dionysius a, a desire to possess this. And so uh, I drew the story that he and Prometheus conspired to steal humanity away from the gods and brought them to earth and so um, there's no way you can hide that much light so <laughs> so they were discovered the conspiracy was discovered and um, and Zeus said, well what what I would do um, is remove this." form of light will separate them and each light, each valence of light energy was separated and they fell into nations and or peoples of the world and so the collective, he said that the only way that this light will re-emerge is if the people figure it out, that they are part of one stream and find a way to create, recreate themselves. Then this visibility of light will, will occur. So that was the, there were a lot of details in it. There was a lot, but that was the, the the thing of the, when, that the only way to punish the gods was to make sure, to give human beings the task of recreating themselves. Mm.
0: This theme of light and qualities of light, uh, you carried with you uh, when you came to Los Angeles in the summer of 1984. um, The Los Angeles Olympics were taking place. And again, you found that Greek mythos and were fascinated, was fascinated, you were fascinated by the quality of light in the torch and the stadium. And you spoke of how a being of light being of fire entered your psyche at that point.
1: Yes, yes. They, I remember in the streets of Los Angeles, and the Olympic torch passed me, and I observed the power of this fire spirit that the torch represented. It's an old, old ritual that was being replayed, and. Um, for me, I, did, I could not take it for granted that this it was a being that they were carrying. And when they lit the Memorial, Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum and there was this huge flame, particularly at nights so I would go there and just look at this fire spirit as it um, stood over the city. And I began to feel the, the fact that the... the Responsibility was to find to figure out what what this place was, what what would what would become of the place, and I mean there were millions, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people coming to the games and the, the city, and so it was a, a place of hospitality at a level whereby um, I was intrigued with the mystery of Los Angeles.
0: And have remained intrigued ever since.
1: I, I stay there to figure out what this city <laughs> should become. because
0: The city of angels.
1: This is the city of angels.
0: And yeah. perhaps the city of God.
1: Well, I, I, I found this text of, of the city of God. What is it? What, what is a city to be? Every city had a task of creating a city center that was dedicated to the sacred. Um, whether it was Athena in some of the cities in, in, in Greece or, or, you know, in Rome. Not, but every city had a deity that was the benefactor of the creative forces through which the rituals of uh, city life would unfold. So it had to do with an oracle. All cities had to do with an oracle. And when we began to build cities, particularly even in, in, in Europe, it was done under the auspices of the Black Madonna. A kind of, of celebration of the tradition of motherhood, sacred motherhood. So all cities, all temples, uh, uh, until you know, very recent, had that kind of relationship, um, particularly in Egypt. The, all, the, the primary primary temples, even though they, they had celebrated um, different pharaonic um, deities. It was um, ISIS was the foundation. And we say wisdom was the foundation for a city. Mm-hmm. You go there to, to know. Yeah. Yeah. You,
0: you came to Los Angeles to go to college. Um, you were at L.A. City College in a pre-medicine program with a strong interest in social justice. And you became very involved in the anti-apartheid movement that was taking place there. And as I understand, your college was one of the places where that movement really started and spread throughout the state and throughout the country. Yes.
1: Yeah, we were, there were some friends who were uh, exiled from South Africa. There were young people going to college with us. and. Um, one day in, in conversation, they shared a story, and one friend, um, Lebo, shared that he was in Lesotho, and he had to stay in the duck, in, low in the tall grass, and would run to a place whereby if he was able to make it successfully, he would get possibility of being sponsored to leave the country. Um, so Los is in the central part of Southern Africa and so- around South Africa, and it was an in- in independent state. And there mm-hmm. were the American embassy there that could give them a visa to leave. But they had to run through guards who would normally shoot them in their back. And several people got killed attempting to leave that way. And so we thought that we would um, create a space for them to tell their stories. And that's how we started, just listening to their stories. And over time, it became, well, let's do something more with it. And we created plays and dramatized the situation of what was being built. And then we began to do those um, storytellings, did at different campuses around. And it became such that people were coming and staying later, and then one day we just, well, let's stay overnight on campus. It was a commuting school, so there was no, <laughs> it was, you know, we could not stay on campus at night. And we said, we'll do it anyway. <coughs> and so we invited all the students from all the surrounding u- universities to come for this overnight um, creative space. And it brought out the news, and it brought out, brought out the police, and it brought out all these things. I realized, wow, this, is, this gets a lot of attention. <laughs> And uh, we just kept doing it. And um, so I remember um, uh, on Nightline, it it was shown that this movement had started. And we we didn't call it a movement, but the Nightline, Ted Koppel did. Mm -hmm. So there was a movement starting around the anti-apartheid movement and issues. And (coughs) we started to uh, enroll other students in other universities. And Mm -hmm. at the time, we had uh, over 10,000 Students participating in that work mm-hmm. and we wrote um, we began to to weave it into uh, uh, the social justice movement around education and one of the things that I wanted to do I presented our argument to the board of trustees for our college district that we did not want the college district to be doing business with uh, corporations in South Africa, which they had investments there
0: right
1: and um, we put forward that we would uh, disrupt their process and they divest their funds. A year later, they did.
0: And that began the whole divestiture movement of the anti-apartheid uh, movement,
1: movement yes. nationally. The, yeah. Not nationally, the boycotts from yeah, different companies, right. yes.
0: Um, that was 1985-86, but also around 1986, in the midst of this political engagement that you had, A strange man came to one of your classes, uh, a man named Carlos Castaneda, (laughs) (laughs) and um, he came to class, he talked about Don Juan and, and plant medicine, and it reawakened for you your childhood experiences, which you'd carried, of another level of reality.
1: Well, here was someone who, who reignited the, the relationship to the dead, to the world of the dead, mm-hmm. and the world of ancestors, and the world of spirit forces, particularly in nature as well. And I did not know who Carlos Casaneda was, and um, he, he made a, an unannounced visit, and the teacher who, who had invited him some time earlier started to invite us to come in so that we can, he can have an audience. But I, when I heard him speak to these things, I knew it to be true. And then I went to get his books and, and read them. And mm-hmm. wow, this is, there is a way to actually engage a practice in this. Mm-hmm. So it started uh, a serious library for me. Now, in
0: 1987, you were hired by uh, the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine. Is that correct? As... Um, a retention coordinator for allied health careers to invite promising young people of color to explore careers in the allied health professions. Is that correct? Yes.
1: Well, the year is significant um, for me. The, the seven, is was, was a fire year in, in the Dagorah cosmology. And fire had to do with, with vision, and connection to the world of spirit. And so that was a deepening year for me, both in the relationship to meeting Castaneda, as well as entering the relationship to Drew University, which was, uh, and was supposed to be, a kind of spiritual sanctuary for a task of health, vision for health. The name Drew, Charles Drew, had, uh, of course, the significance of someone who pioneered research in the blood, mm. which we can say pioneered and research. And he was
0: African American.
1: African American, yes. And. and um,
0: Didn't, did he win a Nobel Prize for that work, or was he. He was very recognized. He right? was very
1: recognized. No, yeah. he did not win a uh-huh. Nobel Prize for that right. work. And, yeah. um, in fact, he. he uh, and I don't know the story to be so true, it was reported this way that he was in a car accident. Mm. and um, died from hemorrhaging because he was refused treatment at a hospital. Ah. Mm. So the transfusions that he processed, that he pioneered, was not available to him.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And he died as a result of his injuries. Mm. Mm. Um, So there's the story of... Drew University, it uh, was a medical complex. So it's Martin Luther King Drew Medical Center. So the hospital was Martin Luther King Hospital. The university was Charles Drew University. Now, they were both, in a certain way, advancing the science of the soul. Drew, from a, from a biological level, to say that in the blood are qualities that could be universal. But nevertheless, there, there are qualities as well that are specific to ethnicity and, and, and say, the collective um, will of a group. So he had a very profound social consciousness uh, when he taught at Howard University. And uh, was a strong advocate for the um, legitimate use of black spiritual scientific knowledge, which in the universities at a time, it's in Tuskegee or Howard, they were um, on a way of cultivating the consciousness that Du Bois felt needed to be cultivated to utilize the higher valences of the souls of black folks. And so Drew was part of that pioneering effort of scientific movement. George Washington Carver, um, there, were, there were many others who were, whose works were really about opening up the intellect to what the soul knows.
0: And you held that job for many years.
1: I had that job for 13 years. Mm-hmm. And primarily I was meeting hundreds of students who were interested in medicine and science.
0: The job was created for you, actually. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, I, I, it was the first, um, this was my first job. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, it was given to me uh, by a mentor who, who thought um, this would allow me to study and work, earn enough money to go to school. Mm
0: -hmm. You were also part of, uh, you had a fellowship in the Center for the Study of Violence and Social Justice, the Franz Fanon Research Center.
1: Yes, one of the vice presidents of the university had um, formed a a study process with four of his other colleagues um, who were research scientists. In history and psychology, and Fanon was um, uh, drew from France Fanon's psychological work on the post-slavery impact on on black cultural life, both in the U.S. and in the Caribbean. Um, so F- Fanon's theory of of oppression became became the a focus of the, that, that work, and I was beginning now to to add a different. I was a student, but also they allowed me to participate in this, in this um, study that they were doing around violence, transformation of violence. And I, I asked them to consider the fact that the human being could resolve certain things if, if, you could say, love, I use the term, love, enters into their consciousness in a certain way. And we know that, from, for me, going back to uh, my experience as a child, that authority, some authorities are divested of love. I mean, people don't bring enough of those love forces into the right use of the authorities that they have. And so an environment requires a person who is conscious of the cognition of love when act- acting with a human being, in, particularly in medicine and in education. And since their their research was primarily to help um, inform a psychological paradigm uh, of practice, I thought, well, w- w- love is a therapy.
0: When we return, uh, we will take up the next great step in your uh, spiritual biography, which is uh, your introduction to Alfred Ligon and your membership in the Aquarian Spiritual Center.